Hey there. Lucky you. This is the Nonfiction Minute Podcast. And this is Jan Adkins, the Explainer General, here to introduce you to three reflections on grand structures. There's a very short poetic form called the Clarahue. And one is about the designer of St. Paul's. It goes, Sir Christopher Wren was talking with some men. He said, if anyone calls, tell them I'm designing St. Paul's. Well, our Andrea Warren does not want to interview Sir Christopher Wren. No, she wants to interview the entire building. St. Paul's Cathedral in London. I think you'll find her interviewing technique fascinating. Hi, this is the Nonfiction Minute. I'm Andrea Warren, and here's what I want to share with you. How to interview a historic building. When I interview people in my work as a writer, I soak up the stories they share about their lives. This is what brings history alive. I've always wished for a way to interview historic buildings because they could tell stories from such a different perspective, having seen it all and heard it all. My dream interview would be St. Paul's Cathedral in London, a place rich with history and therefore with stories. I have learned that those with the most to say can be wary of interviewers. Sometimes employing a little charm can help them warm up. So I would begin by complimenting St. Paul's on how wonderful it looks for a building that opened in 1708. I would reference its great architect, Christopher Wren, who was also an astronomer and mathematician, as is evidenced in many of its design elements. I'd mention its magnificent dome and its massive booming bells that can be heard for miles. You're the prize jewel in a city rich in architectural beauty, I'd say. No wonder so many notables have been baptized, married, and had their funerals here. Flattered, but still reserved, St. Paul's might ask me what I like best about it. I have two favorites, I would reply earnestly, mentioning first the crypt, where many of England's war heroes are buried, along with famous painters and poets. Writers and composers are at nearby Westminster Abbey. Other notables like Florence Nightingale and Lawrence of Arabia are here too. It's altogether quite a congenial place. Starting to thaw a bit, St. Paul's might wonder about aloud about my second favorite, and I would single out the American Memorial Chapel located behind the high altar and dedicated to the memory of the 28,000 Americans who died defending England in World War II. And speaking of that war, I would tell St. Paul's, I am awed by Londoners' resolve that you, their national treasure, would not be destroyed during the Blitz when so much of the city burned. Volunteer firefighters, both men and women, were stationed at all times on your roof. When bombs exploded starting fires, they were right there to put them out, a number of them sacrificing their lives. St. Paul's would nod remembering. The British love you very much, I would say. St. Paul's would pause, clear its throat, and then reply, let me tell you some of my stories. Our dear Roxy Monroe 
is fascinated by the fanciful architect Antoni Gaudi and his wonderful, crazy buildings in Barcelona, Spain. Listen to what she has to say about him in The Architect Who Hated Straight Lines. The Architect Who Hated Straight Lines by Roxy Monroe. Jose Batlow's house in Barcelona, Spain was looking a little shabby. So Batlow turned to Anthony Gaudi, the city's most inventive architect, and got a house that astonished all Barcelona. Its walls studded with glittering blue and green shards billowed like the sea. Some windows were egg-shaped. Others had balconies resembling giant masks. The roof was more fanciful. Eerily iridescent, colors shifted from bluish-green to golden orange. With scale-like tiles, it reminded people of a dinosaur's backbone. Because of the oval windows, people called it the House of Yawns. Others, noticing columns that looked like shin bones, christened it House of Bones. Born in 1852 into a family of coppersmiths, Gaudi grew up in a small town near Barcelona. As a boy, he roamed the countryside making sketches, living in his own world of discovery and fantasy. Becoming an architect was his childhood dream. He quickly developed a style entirely his own, drawing inspiration from nature rather than anything man-made. He was disdainful of straight lines. They belong to men, he used to say. Curved lines belong to God. Near Casa Batlow stands another Gaudi creation, Casa Mila, a six-story apartment building which, because of its soft, swelling shapes, has been likened to human lips, pastries, and a hornet's nest. Still, many people love it. Among Gaudi's accomplishments is what may be the world's quirkiest park, Park Duel, a kind of fairy tale fantasy with two dancing gazelles flanking the entrance, a giant tile-encrusted lizard, and a roof topped with upturned coffee cups. Deeply religious, Gaudi spent his last 20 years working on Sagrada Familia, a cathedral unlike any other, with 18 towers symbolizing the apostles, evangelists, the Virgin Mary, and Christ. It became such an obsession with Gaudi that he set up residence at the work site. Once something of a dandy, he became increasingly careless with his appearance. This neglect may have contributed to his death. On a spring morning in 1926, after taking one last loving look at a newly completed Sagradia Familia Tower, he stepped off the sidewalk and was hit by a streetcar and knocked unconscious. Because of wretched clothing, he was taken for a tramp and not immediately brought to a hospital. Gowdy was finally recognized, but was beyond help and died three days later. When he was taken to his final resting place, a Sagradia Familia, more than half the city showed up, all dressed in mourning. The next piece is by that darling fellow, Jan Atkins. Hey, wait a minute. That's me. So I guess I'll be telling you about P.T. Barnum, a bunch of elephants, and the Brooklyn Bridge in Proof Positive, Ballyhoo confirms the safety of Brooklyn Bridge. On May 24th, 1883, the Brooklyn Bridge was opened to the public. 
It took 14 years, $15 million, and many lives to link Brooklyn and Manhattan. Before work was begun, its designer, John A. Roebling, was making final surveys of the site. A docking ferry boat nudged a piling near him, driving a dirty nail into his foot. He died of tetanus 24 days later. His son, Washington Roebling, took over the engineering project. To sink the bridge tower foundations down to bedrock, workers excavated river silt inside two open-bottomed 3,000-ton iron bases, caissons. High-pressure air pumps kept river water out. As the caissons were dug deeper beneath the river surface, air pressure grew higher. Work became more dangerous. When they were digging near 70 feet deep, a few workers walked through the caisson airlock at the surface, across the street to the tavern, and dropped down dead. The cause? Nitrogen embolism. Gas dissolved in blood under high pressure, expanding rapidly at normal pressure. Scuba divers call it the bends. Washington Roebling himself was crippled this way, but monitored the project through a telescope from his bed upriver. His brilliant wife, Emily Warren Roebling, managed construction on site. Twenty to thirty bridge workers were killed in the construction, from nitrogen embolism, being struck by falling material, and by falls from the towers. It was the longest suspension bridge in the world, with a river span of 1,595 and one-half feet. Anyone could cross. One cent for a pedestrian, five cents for a horse and rider, ten cents for a horse and wagon, five cents for cows, two cents for sheep or hogs. Only six days after its opening, the bridge was crowded with walkers when a rumor started that the bridge was collapsing. Strollers stampeded, killing 12, injuring 35 in the panic. Was the great bridge safe? Months later, May 17, 1884, the great huckster and self-promoter P.T. Barnum set out to prove the solidity of the bridge, quote, in the interest of the dear public, end quote. Across the broad bridge paraded 21 elephants with Barnum's famous African elephant Jumbo in the rear. They were followed by seven Bactrian camels, two hump, and ten dromedaries, one hump. Since elephant and camel fares had never been specified, no tolls were paid. The New York Times reported, quote, it seemed as if Noah's Ark were emptying itself over on Long Island, end quote. If any doubts remained, Barnum's ballyhoo proof put them to rest. Well, that's a wrap for this Nonfiction Minute podcast. We hope you'll find us again soon. This is Jan Adkins, the Explainer General. We're out of here.